CP Podcast 80. So in today's episode, we're joined by shoulder specialist Marie Welsh as we cover some of the most important factors surrounding traumatic shoulder dislocations. This is a particularly useful episode for anyone working in MSK or orthopaedics who wants to gain more knowledge of these injuries. And without further ado, let's dive in. I really hope you enjoy it. Welcome back, Marie. Thank you so much for being on the CP podcast once again. And as a shoulder specialist physio, I'm delighted to talk to you about shoulder dislocations. So first of all, let's set the scene when we're talking about traumatic shoulder dislocations, because as per the Stanmore Triangle, there are different types of dislocations. So could you talk us through what are the different types of dislocations of the shoulder? Absolutely. Thank you for having me back. And and particularly one of my favourite topics, shoulder instability, really fun to assess and treat. So the Stanmore Triangle is a classification spectrum um, that kind of classifies the different types of shoulder instability that you can have. The top of the triangle is your traumatic shoulder dislocation. So when there's been a level of trauma that forces your shoulder out of the ball, out of the socket, and you either have an anterior or posterior shoulder dislocation, which is generally results in a structural change. So that's your kind of traumatic. The other two poles on the triangle from Stanmore's triangle are atraumatic shoulder instability. So one of them being atraumatic structural. So that's your kind of born loose, born loose people. So people that are either hypermobile or have got acquired laxity in the shoulder joint through kind of repetitive action. So sports or um, line of work that just mean that it can be a little bit more predisposed to dislocating. They tend to be the ones that have subluxations um, and they'll have a mechanism of injury, but it won't necessarily be like a high level trauma like you'd see with the traumatic dislocation. So it, it might be kind of shutting the washing machine door or rolling over in bed to reach for something. So there'll be something that they did to make the shoulder dislocate or sublux, but it, sh- it won't be as high energy trauma as you'd expect to see with a traumatic dislocation. And then the third pole is atraumatic muscle patterning. So this is a patient group where due to the activity of their muscles, the shoulder joint is pulled out of joint. So that can either be an anterior or posterior um, dislocation, depending on which muscles are pulling the shoulder out. Um, And there's a heavy link with these patients with kind of psychological features that feed into their muscle patterning resulting in the shoulder dislocation. Excellent. Well, thank you for setting the scene for us there because today we're talking about traumatic, aren't we? And we will dive into atraumatica another time. But let's focus on traumatic. So you talked about anterior and posterior. I think most people probably know that anterior dislocations are much more common than posterior. But would you be able to perhaps talk us through when do we see anterior dislocations? When do we see posterior dislocations? Yeah, absolutely. So the classical positions for anterior shoulder dislocation is an abducted externally rotated arm. So that's surrender type position. So if there's some kind of force applied to the shoulder or at the hand, while their arm's in that position, you are more predisposed to the shoulder dislocating anteriorly. Um, Whereas with your posterior dislocations, you're looking more at kind of a flexed, internally rotated arm position. Okay, so I think that, as we said, posterior, 
much less common. So we'll talk about that just briefly before we focus mainly on anterior for the rest of the podcast. Examples of patients that we might see posterior dislocations? So posterior dislocations are probably a bit more common than what the literature suggests. I think the literature says something like 95% of shoulder dislocations are anterior and only five or even less are posterior. But there's a lot of posterior shoulder dislocations that get missed. So I think that's a bit of a um, a red herring there, if you like, in, in terms of that the data might not be super accurate. So if you read online or in textbooks, posterior dislocations happen to people that are epileptic or that have had electric shocks. Those are kind of your classic patient groups for posterior dislocations. But in reality, if you think about kind of the mechanism, it's that you can get it from doing weightlifting. So if you were doing kind of a bench press and lost control of the bar and your arm comes across your body in an internally rotated position, that is that's something that I've seen someone have a posterior dislocation with. So any any activity that forces your arm into a flexed, internally rotated and adducted position um, with a bit of velocity or load to it could possibly dislocate it. But the typical um, patient groups that you'll see in textbooks are epileptics and people that have been electrocuted. Okay, so when you do that position, it kind of looks like an empty can test, but with the arm really horizontally adducted. So just to kind of point that out for people at home. Right, so let's focus now a little bit more on anterior dislocation. So first of all, in practice, you talked about that abduction external rotation or that surrender position. Can you give us some examples, just like you did for posterior? When does this happen? So classical playing rugby being tackled, putting your arm out to save your fall, arm goes backwards, um, lifting something overhead, resting it on your shoulder and then the load shifting so you try and stop it, your arm being wrenched backwards so sometimes in fights, brawls, that kind of thing you can see it. Those are kind of typical pictures, sometimes from falls where you fall and land awkwardly with your kind of arm out to the side. That's more common in kind of the more older patient group. The younger end of the spectrum, you're talking more sports related. Yeah, a prone fall, as it were. Great. Fabulous. So let's say your patient has just had an anterior shoulder dislocation. They should be brought into A&E. Am I right in saying that? Yeah, absolutely. So unless you are properly trained to do so you shouldn't be trying to reduce their shoulder dislocation that is something that needs to be done by a qualified professional so that should be typically a doctor um, with gas and air because it's horribly painful so in order for that to happen um, unless you've got someone pitch side that's appropriately trained more often than not that will happen in A&E. Great and what else will they do in A&E as part of the assessment process? So before they relocate the shoulder they'll do a neurological assessment to check that all of the nerves are working well in the arm and check obviously from a vascular perspective that that's all patent and okay Um, and they'll do an x-ray to confirm that the shoulder is dislocated although more often than not you don't need to do that you can see it because it's all horrible and squared off and just looks odd but most places will do a shoulder x-ray to to confirm that it's dislocated and what direction. And then once that's confirmed and the neurological tests have been done, the patient will be given gas and air and then the shoulder will be relocated. 
After it's been relocated, you'll be sent for another x-ray to check that it's definitely back in. And then they'll do another lot of nerve tests to make sure that the nerves are all working still. Great. And I've heard you say before about the importance of doing those tests, the neurological tests before and after to make sure that the relocation procedure has not caused any damage. So that's super important. And there might be some structural changes that happen as a result of that dislocation that could be seen on x-ray, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So um, with traumatic shoulder dislocations, you can get some structural changes as a result of the shoulder being torn out, if you like. Um, So those can be bony or cartilaginous. The most common ones that you see on x-ray are the more severe changes. So things like a Hillsax lesion or a reverse Hillsax lesion, depending on which way your shoulder is dislocated, which is essentially a squashing of the bone at the back of the humeral head when it dislocates because it comes out forwards and then sits on the front of the glenoid. So you get kind of this squashing of the bone. Um, and if you've dislocated posteriorly, that will be the reverse. So it will be sitting at the posterior glenoid and will have the dent in the anterior humeral head. Um, so depending on the the size of those you can see them on x-rays especially if you've got kind of multiple views and they can look a little bit like a pac-man where you've kind of got that dent and that change of bone shape the other change that you can see on x-ray is a bony bank art so that's a fracture of the glenoid Um, so sometimes you can just see the fracture line sometimes there's a kind of a fragment floating off those tend to be so once you've got bony changes like a hill sacs, reverse hill sacs, or a bankart le- bony bankart lesion, those tend to be signs of quite a significant trauma. So they've had a, quite a big instability episode, um, and obviously because you've got those structural changes, that might then affect how stable the shoulder is moving forwards, even though you've it's been relocated. The other change that you can sometimes see is just a bankart tear. So that is a glenoid labral tear. You can't see those on x-ray. Those are typically, you do an MR arthrogram to have a proper look at them. Sometimes you can see them on MRI alone, but often it's done with the dye contrast so that you can see it a bit better. Um, So yeah, that's the other kind of structural change that you might commonly see. Excellent. That really sets the scene for us nicely. Thank you so much, Marie. So now let's get into assessment. So you've got a traumatic dislocation patient. Let's say they're two weeks post dislocation and is an anterior dislocation. They were playing rugby and they have now come to your clinic and you're seeing them in clinic. What are some of the key initial thought processes that you have when you're assessing this patient? First of all, kind of goal setting. So the patients that get shoulder dislocations are all across massive age ranges. So as we mentioned earlier, that could be your 80 year old that had a fall and dislocated their shoulder, or it could be your 16 year old rugby player. They're going to have very, very different goals and aspirations. So thinking kind of holistically, is it that the 80 year old's now got a fear of falling and doesn't want to walk anywhere? That might mean that that's a bit more of a focus than the shoulder itself. Whereas your 16-year-old rugby player that wants to be a professional is going to want to get back to sport as soon as possible. So I think having that idea about what we're aiming for early is really important. From an objective perspective, most commonly the orthopaedic team will advise to avoid the surrender position for an anterior dislocation for six weeks just because we don't want them to have another instability episode if we can help 
especially in this really acute early stage when they might be painful and feeling a bit weak and deconditioned. So typically they'll be told to avoid that surrender position for six weeks. They may be coming to you wearing a sling, so being able to give advice on the sling. So where I used to work, um, it would be sling for comfort rather than for a prescripted amount of time, but it's always worth checking that with whoever is overseeing your patient's care. You're going to want to check that the nerves are all working. So having a look at all of your brachial plexus branches. So thinking about things like is deltoid functioning well? Is biceps working well? Can they wrist extend? Can they thumb abduct, adduct? Can they finger adduct, abduct? Make sure all of those kind of branches are working and checking sensation down the arm too. And then it's about encouraging range of movement and early strengthening within comfortable realms. So I'd be having a look at what can they do in terms of their movement, what feels comfortable, and then kind of feeding into an early home exercise program from there. Wonderful. Fantastic. And in terms of frequency, because I know that when a patient comes to see you, you'll ask them, has this happened before? How many times is it dislo- is it still dislocating now? What kind of questions are you asking and why are you asking those? Yeah, that's a really good point. So in terms of dislocation history, that's something you absolutely want to know. It might be that they're a recurrent dislocator, which will then feed into kind of a different thought process in terms of how to manage things. If they've had a couple of traumatic shoulder dislocations and the shoulder is still dislocating, it might be that they need to go on and have an opinion on whether a stabilisation procedure might be helpful because if those structural changes are to a degree that it makes it really difficult for the shoulder to stay in joint, it might be that that need surgical input rather than rehab or both kind of hand in hand um if they're having if this was their first time dislocation and their shoulders dislocating lots again that'd be something that i'd want to make sure that the consultant was aware of that they were having ongoing instability following their initial shoulder dislocation again because it might just change management of things and that kind of dislocation history of how often has it happened? When did it happen? What were you doing? Was it this side? Was it the other side? All of that kind of feeds into decision-making on rehab versus escalating your concerns. Thank you so much. And and actually, you've just kind of taken the words out of my mouth because I was just about to ask you, so how are they commonly managed? We, they could be surgical, but we could also very much rehab these patients without doing any surgery. Yeah, absolutely. I think it depends on what their goals are and how they're doing in terms of coping. And it's a difficult one and it's a a very individual one, similar to kind of other body parts. Um, If you've got someone that's really, really sporty, that's had a shoulder dislocation, it's been relocated in A&E, they're coming to see you for rehab and that shoulder is just dislocating all of the time, no matter what you do. I'd probably still want to do rehab with them. It's one that I'd probably be flagging up to the consultant relatively early. This this person's got quite high level activity aspirations and that shoulder is not stable no matter what we're doing with it. It might be that with a period of rehab, it calms down. And sometimes the consultants will say, go away and do a period of rehab and see. Because obviously, whilst you're, you've got all this pain inhibition and fear, you know, it, it's reasonable that your shoulder's not particularly stable and strong and it might be with some rehab things settle down. Um, but equally, there'll be a patient group where no matter what you do, it doesn't stay in. And there'll be people that 
with the right rehab are absolutely fine and have no ongoing problems. A lot of it really varies. Sometimes some of the um, questions that we kind of encountered in clinic with the the group of people that are kind of on the fence where it feels a bit iffy still, it's not frankly dislocating, but they still don't fully trust it even though they've done their rehab. That tends to kind of revolve around what their aspirations are and what's kind of going on with life at the moment. So again, if you've got someone that's kind of high level sport, amateur level or even professional and they're having this kind of ongoing, I don't trust it alongside those structural changes seen on X-ray or MRI or MR arthrogram. Sometimes the conversation goes, okay, so if we do a stabilisation in six weeks time, you're going to need nine months off sport. How does that fit in with the calendar you've got coming up? So I've definitely been part of conversations where I've been like, right, you're on a scholarship at uni to play rugby, to play lacrosse, whatever sport it is. You're going to be looking at nine months out if we were to do surgery. How does that sound to you? Is the timing right for this? So we'll often get quite a lot of sporty people, particularly that will delay it until there's a quieter time. So kind of over the summer, towards the end of the season, summer break time. So they have a bit more chance to not miss out on their sporting activities. I mean, there's there's professional rugby players out there that have all of these structural changes in their shoulder, but just manage it with rehab because they don't want to take the downtime of having surgery and then the recovery afterwards. So there's a whole spectrum of, of copers, non-copers, people in the middle and how best to manage it. And that's a decision that should be made collaboratively, including the patient, yourself and the consultant as to what's best in terms of moving forwards. Wow, you've summed that up so comprehensively, Marie. Thank you so much. You've mentioned a few times structural changes. When you mention that, are we thinking about, as you said earlier, the Hillsax lesions and the Bankart lesions? Because we know that if someone has those kind of lesions, it could be those which are causing the ongoing instability because the ball and socket joint isn't congruent and has a dent in it, so to speak, and and therefore it's those that are dislocating and therefore no matter how much rehab they go through, no matter how strong they are, those structural changes are what's causing the problem and therefore those might be what need to be addressed in order for this patient to be able to maintain their stability. Yeah, absolutely. So the structural changes are the thing that's going to affect the ability for the shoulder to stay in joint. So with your heel sacs lesion, if you almost imagine it as it like a bit of a pothole when you move your arm, if that hill saxation if that pothole's big enough your tire's going to s- slip into it so if that pothole's big enough your glean it's going to slide right off your glenoid and you're going to dislocate equally if you're losing that bottom bit of your glenoid with a bony bank cart it's going to be easier for your shoulder to dislocate so those structural changes do massively affect the integrity of the shoulder as we've previously discussed there isn't a you've got these changes, therefore your shoulder will always be unstable. We, we can't always marry up the imaging with the clinical presentation. Some people can rehab and make make their shoulder nice and stable and strong and function well, even with those structural changes. But the reason for doing an operation would be there are changes to the humeral head, the labrum, the glenoid, the ligaments that all control or influence shoulder stability and they aren't coping, they're struggling, they don't trust it, it's continually dislocating. Those are kind of the two things that we piece together. So treating the person, not the imaging. The imaging does not mean that they will always have shoulder instability. It's a bigger picture than that. 
That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Marie. And actually, you've, if I may, final question. You've brought us onto this nicely about that person who's not coping. So you've talked us through how you might assess a patient who's coming to see you two weeks post their first dislocation. If I can pose a different patient to you now, let's say you have a 29-year-old hockey player. They had their first dislocation six years ago and they're coming to see you now and they've got relatively good range of movement. It's nearly full, but they're explaining to you that they don't trust it I'm not happy with my shoulder. I feel like it's unstable. I feel like it's weak. They've got really good range of movement. So you're not going through that initial rehab, but they're now in a position where they're not coping. What do you look at for this person? How do you assess them? So I think I'd look at a range of different things, um, what their demands are and what kind of rehab they've done to date, um, their thoughts and beliefs around shoulder dislocation, similar to any other um, condition. And then I'd look at what their shoulder is actually like in function. Yeah, they've got a full range of movement, but what's their endurance like? What's their cuff strength like in neutral and end of range so have they got kind of that through range power are they able to do sudden quick movements with confidence what's their proprioception like can they weight bear on it and then I'd probably want them to if it's been six years it's clearly not that bad because they've been coping Obviously, we've got a hypothetical patient here. In reality, there's going to be lots of nuances there. It might not have been the right time for them to seek advice, etc. But take it on the face value. Their dislocation was six years ago. Surgeons aren't going to be leaping to say, let's stabilise that. I'd want to do a good chunk of rehab focusing on through range strengthening, making sure the cuff's nice and strong, thinking about speed and power and proprioception most importantly because often when people don't trust their shoulder it's because they're lacking that proprioception so lots of weight bearing activities body weight that kind of thing to see whether with a kind of 12 week trial whether that made any positive inroads if they came back after three months and they weren't really buying in because of their beliefs I'd probably talk to them a bit about what surgery might look like just so that they know because lots of people think oh surgery is a quick fix I'll get this done and then I'll be back to normal so talking them through the fact that for six weeks or so you're going to be in a sling 24 7 depending on what surgeon you see often people aren't super keen on surgery at that point and not to dissuade them from having an operation it's about helping patients make shared decisions if you're not buying into rehab you're not really trying it or you don't feel like even though you've tried it's not helping this is what the alternative option looks like just so that they can kind of formulate a decision with you Absolutely superb. Thank you so much, Marie. There's so much more to talk about with this. I think this sounds like a webinar option because there's so much in this. But for now, on this podcast, you've given us a really brilliant insight into your role and how you assess these patients with traumatic shoulder instability. So thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. So real specialist input on traumatic shoulder dislocations there from Marie and from someone who works with shoulder consultants to address the issues affecting these patients. I know that she is well placed to give you guys the key bits of information you need. And I really hope this episode helps your understanding of traumatic shoulder dislocations. See you soon.